0: So the why of working with ancestors is going to be different if you come from an individualistic society like North America versus a collectivist society like South America or certain parts of Europe, right? The why of working with the ancestors comes back to worldview. In Asian traditions, you worship the ancestors, you venerate the ancestors, because if you don't, they will get very upset and then your life will fall apart. Similarly, you venerate the ancestors because you're then teaching your descendants to venerate you and take care of you when you're in the afterlife, as you're taking care of your grandparents in the afterlife, and so on and so on. So it becomes a communal process of society, mm. right? Um, the individual why of it doesn't matter, right? Mm. So I, I I think for um, people in in diaspora communities in the Western world, reconnecting in with root reconnecting in with with identity, in relationship with society and, and, and culture can also come in with working with the ancestors, working with the stories of the ancestors, working with the ancestral traditions of the ancestors centered on that. So that's partly the why. For other people, it could be very much that they want to heal themselves. There's a great deal of family systems work out there that shows how much comes down to generations to us. So in understanding the ancestors through working with them, we can better understand ourselves and what we've inherited and then cutting off going forward with any negative or unhealthy dynamics.
1: Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, author Ben Stimson joins me to discuss his book, Ancestral Whispers, a guide to building ancestral veneration practices. Ben explains that the ancestors are so much more than our biological lineage, but can include a sense of place and anyone and anything that has contributed to your sense of self. He talks about the importance of story and worldview, and allowing yourself the freedom to develop your own rituals of relationship to the ancestors. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Ben Stimson is a therapist, lecturer, student, and spiritual director. Ben has developed courses on a variety of topics, including ancestor veneration, the power of story, and folklore. When not working with clients or writing, Ben is engaged with his area of study, religious studies, medieval and classical studies, folklore, and spirituality. He joins me today to discuss his first book, Ancestral Whispers, a guide to building ancestral veneration practices. Ben, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat. Yes, so am I. I'm very interested in working with the ancestors. I've personally started working with ancestors probably a couple of years ago and I want to know your story about how you started working with the ancestors but I think maybe the best place to begin is and this is a really loaded question but who are the ancestors because there's not just one simple way of understanding them right Of course definitely yes well, so I,
0: I I speak about that in, in the book. I wrote two entire chapters to that. And I feel like in the Western world, we, we've we been um, kind of socialized to see ancestry as a very limited form of relationship. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to say the ancestors are anybody or anything that has contributed to who you are. Anything that we are in relationship with That is part of a lineage Mm. is ancestral to us and so it isn't who are the ancestors it is who is ancestral and sorry i i tend to approach it that way so in the west we tend to think of ancestors as our biological relatives or to some extent our lineage right so that can be a lineage of of spiritual initiation it can be a lineage of profession but really our focus when we think of ancestor work and ancestral the ancestors are those biologically I like to push for boundary with that and I beg the question well who else could be ancestral to us what other forms of ancestor might we have and and then that gets into bigger questions of of relationship community and and society kind of how,
1: how are we fitting into So that's how I'd like to answer that question. That's okay. (laughs) Right. Right. No, that's perfect. And that's kind of what I do in my own um, work with the ancestors. And on one way, I sometimes think about it as who and what has made me, me, you know, and it's not just the biology. It's not just the blood, but various other ancestors. And I hope we can get into that a little bit more (laughs) as, as we proceed here. But I thought that maybe now that we know a little bit about who the ancestors are, I can ask you about your journey and what led you to begin this practice of working with the ancestors absolutely so I live near Toronto I'm I'm in living in
0: Ontario Canada right now but people by my accent can probably guess I'm not from here originally so I'm originally from the United Kingdom I came over to Canada when I was eight and a half years old and I didn't get much of a choice in that matter my family came over here to seek different uh, economic opportunities but as a, as a kid obviously I didn't get a choice uh, as to whether or not I, I wanted to come when I came over here, I was, I was, I've identified it now as culture shock. I was dealing with culture shock. It was a trauma for me to come here. And not only was I ripped away from my life over there, my friends, but also my family. All of my extended family is, is still in the UK. And and so the early years, and especially my teenage years, I was really grasping for any sense of home because I didn't really feel like I belonged in Canada. I was bullied horrifically for my accent and then for being gay and then for, you know, being weird, right? All of these things, right? And and I was always different from those people I grew up with. And so I, 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 the reason I really connected with spirituality in general was because I really wanted to connect with a sense of home again. And, and around when I was 13, 14, I read The Mists of Avalon for the first time, and that reminded me of home. Suddenly, here was a, a story that I, I grew up with. King Arthur is such a huge part of our, our um, of our culture, and, and here was also a, a symbol of a loving mother goddess. So spirituality started from that place of trauma, but there was other things going on. I, I was engaged with all sorts of control dramas in, in my life. I, I wasn't grounded. I didn't have a sense of, of being connected here. And that followed through in, into my 20s. And when I was about 27, 28, after a long period of of, of not really being connected with my spirituality, more being like a thing up here than an experience in my life, I suddenly started to work with a spiritual group that I I started to, uh, to explore. story. That's where the, the power of story comes into my life. And I also started to connect with other spiritual groups in Ontario here. One of them was Lakumi, which is via the, the, the Orisha tradition of, of Cuba. And one of the foundational parts of that spiritual tradition is ancestor work. And it was funny because around that same time, I was also doing a lot of therapy work. I was starting to do my, I was doing my own therapy, but I was also training to become a psychotherapist up here or a counselor. And around that same time, as I was engaging with the ancestors in a spiritual tradition, I also did a big project for my my psychotherapy training program around ancestor work, um, particularly family story and family. So I I was looking at family from two very different points of view, but, but they mingled very well together. And... Uh, From that, I eventually started to take ancestral story and ancestor very seriously in my life. Being a queer individual, the idea of family was always fraught for me. A lot of queer individuals don't have good relationships with their biological families, and so community becomes very important. And so individuals within the community, ancestors within the queer community, are, are, are a big part of that chosen family piece. So I, I really stepped back into my life and I started to gain healing from that process. And I remember in 2016, I had a, had a, an experience where I, seven individuals from my life came back into my life throughout the year. These are people who I had known 10 years earlier or five years earlier and had gone out of my life for various different reasons. And, and every single one of them brought a, a piece of healing back to me. And at the very end, that culminated in a very, very important person coming back into my life. And so I started to reflect on who I used to be, to who I am now, to who I'm becoming. And that ancestor piece came into that. I am my own ancestor, the person I was 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Same with all of us. We all exist on a continuum of of life right same with the ancestors our story merges with the story of our our parents our great our grandparents and so on and so on so i i came to finish in 2019 my therapy my program i was already working with ancestors in a very vivid spiritual way and so i sat down and i thought you know i i i, I was trying to come up with stuff to do for my clients like build start building a practice so I thought, you know what? I've just gone through so much around ancestors of so my own life. I want to I want to bring this experience to my clients. So I started writing the notes that would become the course for eventually this book. And so that ran for about a year and then the pandemic hit and I had nothing to do and <laughs> the government was paying us money. So I thought, you know what? I think that I have this like thick binder full of notes. Because death and grief was a big part of my my training program, you know, I I think this would make a good book. So two and a half years later, here we are, and it's now <laughs> in uh,
1: in physical copies. So yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll so I hope
0: that answers the question. I hope that that goes into it.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I can relate in many ways. I know that. Extended family, that's one one way we can call it, but also the families that we create, you know, so as a gay mm-hmm. man myself, you know, I know that often it's difficult, you know, you know, it, and as I said before, our families in many ways inform who we are and it's the families we create, but also various other things. So I kind of want to ask you, it started with home and this is something I'm thinking about a lot recently is this idea of home has working with the ancestors given you a sense of home absolutely absolutely it has when i started to look at
0: my ancestors beyond the scope of just my immediate relatives i started seeing that the whole journey has been for me to go home and Mm -hmm. so i'm actually in the process of planning to move to the uk next year i'm in that process applied for membership in one of the associations over there, start money together, and I'm starting to figure out where I'm going to land. But the whole journey, I think my whole spiritual journey has really been about coming home. Mm-hmm. And I felt that call, like North America has never felt like home to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the energetics of of North America has never felt like I bond. There's certain places that I think, you know, I get those warm, fuzzy feelings of, oh yeah, I, I had good experiences here. But I, it's not the same as, going to the place I come from. And yeah. so, you know, like 10, uh, 12 years ago, I went, I went back to the UK for the first time after 15 years, and there was an immediate sense of home. It was yeah. as if the land itself was saying, oh, there you are, mm. right? And, you know, some of the spiritual work I do now, I, I work a lot with Druidry, and Druidry in British tradition is really something I've, I've really connected with. Because it's that those stories of my people, the stories of the landscape I come from, right? It's working with the spirit, of the place, and I talk about that in the book. I talk about landscape and 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 sense of place as ancestor. We don't tend to think of it in that way. We often personify those places in in deity form. But if you think of of a of, of a piece of of place as home, and then where we come from. That's ancestral. So for me, that that whole journey has been ancestral. Not also to mention the fact that all of my ancestors are buried in that place. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it makes me think, you know, my own personal experience. I recently moved back to Colorado and I always assume, I always think of Colorado as home. And Mm -hmm. what I have been telling people, uh, because I lived in California for like 18 years, Uh, During that time, I always said that I was living in exile Mm -hmm. and there's something about the land. I can't quite explain it. And there are other places that I have a really profound connection uh, to land. And it's also interesting in the sense that my family has been in the North American continent for a very (laughs) long time. And yet I also know that before we got here, We were in Wales and we were in the Liverpool area. And when I went to England the first time and when I went through Wales, I also had that sense of home. So it makes me think that we can have multiple homes. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. If I hadn't been born in the UK, if I'd been born in Canada, I don't think I would feel the same way as I do. Right. Uh, because I had relationship with that place. My younger brother who was two years younger than me. He was six and a half when he when he came over. He doesn't remember the UK mm. because it isn't home to him. Right. Ontario is home. It's right? because he has relationship to it. And I think that's that's a key piece when it comes to ancestor work is. And that's why I I I I, I repeat this word all the time in my book is relationship. It right. comes down right. to relationship. Yeah. um a lot of people in the diaspora in any diaspora this sense of boom being an original homeland somewhere mm. but that's the original homeland of your ancestors mm. you're connecting to it through your ancestors right so what could a sense of relationship be like to the place that you're on now now i'm really bad for even suggesting that because i haven't really done very uh, a good job relating to ontario You know, I'll probably miss it when I leave, but I don't have that relationship to it. But I think, again, if I was born here, I would have that relationship because I would be literally have been fed with food that had been grown here. I would have been, there was that imprint, right? That spiritual connection. So I I think that it, it gets really down to, again, that nitty gritty of relationship and intentionally looking at that
1: relationship and so then that can go multiple different ways right 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 Mm -hmm. and so building the relationship is the foundation for working with the ancestors and i know you cover a lot of this in the book and i don't want to go through all the details of the book i want to encourage people to read it i thoroughly enjoyed it i haven't told you that thank you but i very much enjoyed the book and i do highly recommend that people get a copy of it it's an amazing Mm -hmm. amazing piece of work but how would people begin to develop a relationship with their ancestors? And the other question in connection to this is, why? Good
0: question, right? Why would you? Why would you want to, right? Yeah. And and that, that often comes up in kind of pagan witchcraft circles. What is the reason to connect to ancestors? Especially, say, Christian ancestors for the past thousand years. Why would you want to connect to these? People, right. We often see then in in those communities a want to connect with pagan ancestors from 2,000 years ago. They're the real ancestors. All these people in between, they're nothing, right? And, I, and that says a lot more about where the individuals are at than necessarily the ancestors. I think that we have to, and I start with this in the book, we have to look at worldview. I think a lot of books on the market and I, I, like I don't want to trash talk any books out there; they, they all serve a purpose. But a lot of books on the market they will they will tell you that ancestor work is ancestral witchcraft or spell work or so on and so on. Right? It's how to use the ancestors as spiritual guides to perform something that you want. Right? Ask that you want, a spell that you want. And I think that that for many people in neo-paganism, I'm not assuming that it's just neo-pagans who are listening to this but uh, that's the community I'm really, uh, really gearing this towards, only then see the ancestors in that way, because really that question of, well, why, who, what come up again and again, you know? And I think that in many ways, because of say religious trauma, leaving faiths like Christianity of of origin, that are very, very connected to those ancestors can then create that uncomfortable place of, well, well how, what do we do with them? A lot of people also have family trauma that they're dealing with, and so you know, a couple of books out there work specifically on healing that family trauma. But sometimes that can be very daunting for people who've never had the experience of stepping in. One of my students in one of the classes I had, she was indignant that she was understanding ancestor work as then her needing to take on responsibility of healing all these unhealed ancestors. Mm, mm. Did not have good relationships with, and so for her ancestor work was like what 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 is this? Her it was working with very particular ancestors then. So and I talk about that in the book as well. You know, choosing the ancestors that we want to relate to because of our own where we're at, right? right. So I I start very intentionally with worldview. I want people to start with the basics. Who are the ancestors? Who, who, what does being dead mean? How do you conceptualize them? How do you conceptualize cosmology? How do you conceptualize the role of dead in, in your world? How do you conceptualize yourself in your world, right? And a lot of people have a lot of pieces of of worldview that are very subliminal. They don't necessarily uh, see it always on a conscious level until it's pointed out to them. And so the the first exercise in this book is to really just flesh out your understanding of yourself and your worldview and what you see and believe, because then that is then how you're going to see and understand the ancestors. You can't relate to something unless you understand how you're perceiving them right? Uh, or sensing them or, or understanding them. And then from that, the question is, what kind of relationship do you want? If you only see ancestors as being blood relatives, then you're only going to relate to those of them. You relate to other beings as ancestors, then those different relationships take on different meaning for you and different form. So I, I would say the how and the why are really connected in that way. But I think that it's like a snowball effect. They're both in relationship to each other. They compound each other. As you go deeper into one, you'll start to gain an understanding of the other. As you understand why, you might understand the how to, right? And so that's why in the book, I don't give rituals or sets of spells or things that you can do. I suggest... Because a lived spiritual practice of ancestors, like any other form of spiritual being, spirituality, um, is indicative of what you're believing. You have to understand your worldview in order for and your lived practice to make sense. Why would you do anything if it didn't feed into you know into an understanding or or why understand the why of it right? I, I I tend to take it that direction. I think that when you look cross culturally, and I tend to look very cross culturally in all of this, Western culture and particularly Western paganism, as as a form of that, is is disconnected from collectivism. You tend to see collectivism as being the major kind of wave of society, in the world. Individualism is a is a is a. It's something that has only recently come up in the past mm. few hundred years. Right. So the why of working with ancestors is going to be different if you come from an individualistic society like North America versus a collectivist society like South America or certain parts of Europe. Yeah. Right. The why of working with the ancestors comes back to worldview. In Asian traditions, you worship the ancestors, you venerate the ancestors, because if you don't, they will get very upset and then your life will fall apart. Similarly, you venerate the ancestors because you're then teaching your descendants to venerate you and take care of you when you're in the afterlife, as you're taking care of your grandparents in the afterlife, and so on and so on. So it becomes a communal process of society, mm. right? Um, the individual why of it doesn't matter, right? Mm. So I, I I think for um, people in, in diaspora communities in the Western world, reconnecting in with root Reconnecting in with with identity in relationship with society and and culture can also come in with working with the ancestors, working with the stories of the ancestors, working with the ancestral traditions of the ancestors centered on that. So that's partly the why. For other people, it could be very much that they want to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of family systems work out there that shows how much comes down to generations to us. So in understanding the ancestors through working with them, we can better understand ourselves and what we've inherited and then cutting off going forward with any negative or unhealthy dynamics. So really, there's a lot of things right. why people would want, right. you know, yeah, Right. you know.
1: Yeah. There's so much in what you just said. So let's unpack a little (laughs) bit of this. So so, yeah, I was jotting down a few little notes here, so I'm going to jump back and then we'll kind of go back and Mm -hmm. forth here. But one of the things that you had mentioned was Christianity and the sort of heritage of Christianity and something that I have, and it's been going on for a while. And I see it more and more often is that for people who don't, Connect with Christianity, even though it is part of the worldview that they have been raised in. I think that there's often this question of, well, what do I do? Mm-hmm. How do I um, practice a spirituality? And so there's a lot of, I think, reimagining things. And it seems like, in a sense, um, I'm not sure how I want to phrase this, but we're reinventing our spiritual or a lot of people are reinventing their spirituality, reclaiming it in a sense. And it seems like part of that is that we have to to develop a story of origin of sorts and that the ancestors play a part in that way. And so When we tell these stories and the land, it seems to me that that's one of the first places that we have to begin is with the land. And because you talk a lot about, or talk a bit about cultural appropriation and the dangers of Mm -hmm. it, and that the spiritual practice is something that we start with the place. And so how would, how would someone go about doing that? What do you think uh, someone would do? If I understand the, the
0: question correctly, yeah. I think that it, it very much depends upon where they find themselves. Mm. Because my my where I've come to with this idea of connection with landscape mm. is that landscape is is a is a is the canvas that we place our relationship onto. Mm. It, now, oftentimes, in se- like in European cultures and, and old world regions, there's a different relationship with landscape than in settled, uh, colonized places. In North America, particularly. In Australia, definitely. Have two groups or multiple groups of individuals and communities that have relationship, different relationships with in landscapes. So then oftentimes, culture wars come out because one group privileges their story of that landscape over another. When you look at folklore, folklore, this is why folklore is such an important part for me. When you look at folklore, what folklore actually is, is actually folk culture. And folk culture is not like a national... Official culture. Folk culture is adapted to the local landscape. And so it's often and it's perpetuated by the ancestors, it's perpetuated within those individual communities. But what often folklore does it, it, in a much more in a much more organic way is that it will adapt itself to wherever it finds itself. We see this in Scots-Irish cultures in North America, for example. What often will happen is, unlike that colonialist like national culture, popular culture, destroy and take over, at the local level, there is a lot more um, ability to create authentic and and local connections. You often see local folk regions such as Appalachia, the Ozarks, Midwest, New England bringing in, emerging, and organically encompassing the Native American while also destroying those cultures, while also being part of the overall culture. That is, is, but it's, it's a different relationship to the landscape. So what you... I'm trying to be very careful when what I say here because I don't want people to misunderstand me. Right. But at the local folk culture level, you tend to see a lot more of a localized culture that is representative of the people of that community. Mm. And that is across the board. You will find that in every single culture and that's the dynamic because it, it plays into our, our basic psychology, the way that we map onto our local landscapes, information, we associate, it, it really does come down to that uh, basic psychology. So we start with the landscape, but not just the landscape. We start with the stories of the relationship of the culture, the local culture mm. on that landscape, and that can be w- whatever culture you happen to come from. Right? If you have, uh, if you come from Native American background, that will of course be the cultural relationship you're existing within and relating to from mixed heritage then you will have to find the balance between yourself right but usually folk culture is living culture you are born into this living culture you exist in culture and so you become an extension of that group relationship to them now where it becomes difficult is that quite often religion as a social uh context as a social institution not necessarily just as spiritual but as a social institution A lot of communities are built around religious communities, because religion, no matter what it is, gives you the answers, the cosmological answers, that sense of purpose, that sense of place, that sense of meaning. And so oftentimes, all manner of different forms of culture will be then connected to that religious tradition. I think this is where the disconnect comes in. When people look at, say, folk magic, which are uh, uh, now becoming a bigger thing in in your and, and the uh, Western culture, um, people are looking at folk Christianity, not because they necessarily believe in Christianity, but because they understand that it is a container for all of these other aspects of culture and relationships. And so it's like, you know, it's like going over to your great aunt Florence's house and playing by her rules because you want to spend time with her, right? right. You know, you might not necessarily enjoy that she, you know, wants to pray Hail Mary or whatever before dinner, but you want to spend time with her. She's the she's the person you want to relate to. So you'll just do whatever she wants to do. That's fine. That's just her way of thinking, without necessarily taking it on for yourself. So I think that, again, it's a complex thing, but I think that plugging into story necessitates then an understanding that you don't have to take all elements of that story for yourself, but that you can relate to those figures, those individuals, to that community identity through that story. And that story is often located in the landscape. So if you look at the way that local communities relate to their community, it's often in a physical space. In, the idea of the hometown, right? Going home to the hometown and knowing that, you know, your grandfather used to own that shop there. Or you you and your you and the boys used to hang out and and smoke weed or whatever over there when you were teenagers. Or, you know, that's the the site of the homecoming parade and so on and so on. In the same way that any other spiritual tradition will usually relate difference between an ancestor from three generations back and an ancient mythological figure from a thousand years ago is not that distinct like it's not that different i hope that makes sense
1: it it does so with what you were just saying and i and i know that my question wasn't probably phrased all that well one of the things that i was thinking about i'll i'll kind of look at it from my own personal perspective, because I think that'll help a little bit because I do know a lot of my family genealogy and Um, on my father's side, the Mathers have been here since 1635. There was actually someone on the, not, not one of the Mathers, but I do have an ancestor that was on the Mayflower. And the Mathers are part of the colonial history. The first ancestor was Richard Mather. He's sort of the patriarch who brought the family over. But I am a direct, I'm directly connected to Cotton Mather Mm -hmm. and his father Increase. Cotton Mather would have been like a cousin (laughs) nine generations Mm -hmm. back. They were both part of the Salem witchcraft trials. Um, And there are some even darker aspects to the family (laughs) and their Puritan ancestry. And so it's interesting for me to kind of reflect on that because there is this history, there is a story there, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't relate to the Puritanism at all. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like I need to try to understand it. In a Mm -hmm. sense, because it does run through not just the nation, but through the family and that there is not just family trauma, but there's national trauma that has to be addressed. And, you know, I've not one of my goals is I would love to go back to the area, you know, Massachusetts and, you know, I'd love to go to Salem and Boston and some of these other places, because I know that that's where. You know, it's kind of the homeland in one aspect, but there's this, you know, it it, it comes to these ideas of, you know, healing, and then also that sort of divorcing oneself from the family, cultural, religious experience. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be something that some people have difficulties kind of working with. Because sometimes it's overwhelming. You talk about that a little bit in the book, you know, especially in North America and the relationship with slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's, I think it's tricky, right? You know, because, you know, some people will say, well, I had nothing to do with that, but the family did. Mm -hmm. So how do we, you know, how, how do you think that people should recognize sort of these negative aspects of the ancestors and how can maybe that be turned into a kind of positive in a sense? Can it be turned into a positive?
0: (laughs) Well no, no it can't. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Um I don't think that well I if I say that. I actually understand I think what you're saying now. I think that I think that where people get stuck with ancestor work is that they then are assuming that they then are their ancestors, right. that they are culpable for those things. Right. All of us, everybody in every generation is 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 born into a context that the previous generations created, right? And mm-hmm. this is where that responsibility piece comes in. So, you know, what's happening in the United States right now with politics of trying to rewrite the history of 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 of, of, of colonialism and the the, the foundation of The us being a slave nation right literally built by slaves is uncomfortable for people because then it's that over identification with the the story that makes them comfortable and so when people start digging into in general when people start digging into their ancestral story and find those unsavory things that those shadowy things that the culture and the family is an extension of that culture wouldn't want you to look at. And, and oftentimes family systems will do very, very fucked up things. I apologize. I, I, I hope oh, that's, that's okay. okay to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they do messed up things to make sure that each generation uh, becomes oblivious to it. Right. What needs to happen is an understanding that we are not our ancestors, but we are living in the context that they created. And if the current context that we live in is, is, is creating benefits for us or for any group because of that context and that history, then the responsibility piece is to understand that history, understand the benefits, and ensure that we create and work towards a beneficial society for all, right? Mm. But I think that we can also take this too far, mm. and I say that mainly because it depends on the context of the situation. You know, if we look at ancestor work in that way, then you know, if we go back two thousand years to the Romans invading Britain, most North Americans of white ancestry have British ancestry. That's just the way that the the community has gone. Right. So if we look at that, then we would be looking at the modern-day Italians as being as being colonialists and racists and coming in and taking over, right? Where does that end? And where that ends is where the current culture is still dealing with the problems set up by the original thing. So slavery, we're still dealing with the uh, repercussions of that. Same with the genocide of indigenous people and the continued genocide of indigenous people through the murder of of indigenous women, through, in Canada that's a particularly nasty thing, the Mm -hmm. the, um, residential schools, right? So the social issues from now have history, and we need to understand that history so that we can heal and move forward so that those things aren't continuing. And we know as a society how to do this, Mm. right? We, we, we fought a world war around this we went in and stopped Nazis from exterminating Jews and multiple other minority groups right We understand this mm. but then when it becomes uncomfortable, we suddenly don't want to understand it yeah, yeah. so I, I I think that I think that the, the again it's that discernment of of what exactly right you know if genocide from 4,000 years ago, in, in the steps of Russia are not going to continue. Like, if they're not showing up as a problem now in our society now, then I think we can be understanding that that was a context from our ancestry. But right. if we're looking at just the past few generations and in, in working with those ancestors, we need to be realistic with who those ancestors were in their lives. Mm. Yes, they were products of their culture, but also we're products of that culture too. Right. So what parts of that culture need to change in order for us to perpetuate a healthier future going forward? Right? Yeah. So in a convoluted sort of way, really, <laughs> it's it's about it's about what the issue is. But and that's right. why I think we can't you know we can't stroke a a full brush on this. Right. Right. Um, yeah
1: there's there's a lot of dynamics going on right 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 no i appreciate everything you just said and Mm -hmm. and i think that that there is the positive i think there is a positive in the sense of healing Mm -hmm. and that healing comes often i think with acknowledgement you Mm -hmm. know i'll share with you again um part of the story and what's prompting some of these questions and again it's my ancestors and genealogy Mm -hmm. and in relationship to slavery i always thought that Since they were, you know, Puritan ministers and theologians and whatnot, I thought, ah, they probably didn't have slaves. And then I was reading something about Cotton Mather, and he was a proponent of a kind of vaccination that he learned Mm. from one of his slaves. I'm like, oh, damn it. (laughs) Right. Right. There goes that illusion. And then it got even worse. I learned that mm-hmm. Richard Mather, the patriarch, was the first person mm-hmm. to convert an African slave to Christianity, and that caused a controversy, in the sense of, well, can you have a Christ, Can you have a Christian as a slave? Mm-hmm. You know, should you be converting mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. slaves to Christianity? And Cotton Mather is the one who came up with the answer. And he says, well, yes, by all means, you should, because that's going to pacify them. They're going to be less Mm -hmm. likely to run away or slice the master's throat in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to sit with that because that's part of my family history, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there was someone that I won't name them, but uh, they were going to be a guest on the podcast. And. One of the things they asked me in initial emails was, oh, do you pronounce your name the same way as the great Cotton Mather? And I'm like, well, I have no idea how he pronounced his name, (laughs) but you know, yeah, I'm related, but I kind of challenged this idea of the greatness, you know? And, 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 and I see that is kind of where the work has to be in some places is to, acknowledge both the contributions but also that negative aspect and it's through the acknowledgement that we can do the healing right Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah they're part of the history but and they are like you said products of their time and their place Mm -hmm. but just denying it or ignoring it is just going to perpetuate the the issues that go back to them you know, and so exactly, yeah. And and this is
0: where I, I I hope this comes across in the book. I really do hope this. But this is where ancestor work then suddenly becomes internal work, right? Because we're not necessarily like in in stories that are passed down through the family. We're not relating to our ancestors directly. We're relating to the stories of the ancestors mm. that the family finds acceptable. Right. And when we look at folk culture again, it's the same thing. When we look at national culture, culture in general, the stories of these individuals, eventually the dead and the ancestors become containers, not for their actual history, but for what the society wants them to be. And that changes yeah. throughout for every generation, right? Yeah. So then the question becomes: okay, if 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 we're feeling controversial around this or we we're, we're this is somehow challenging us, then what is it that's actually being challenged inside of us? What is the discomfort? What is the shadow that we're not allowing to come up, right? Because I mean, looking at like my own British heritage, right? You know, I can say, I could sit here and say, oh, well, you know, where all my ancestors were working class and they were really under the yoke of the the elites, and it's the elites that were causing all the issues. That's not going to be true, Right. right? That's not going to be true. In North America, the same thing. This is why we see that the recurring recurring trope of the African princess or the Native American princess. Right. Oh, well, you right. know, I my family's okay because, you know, I have an African American princess, you know, five generations back. So really we're 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 okay. We're fine. That. that serves to deal with something that you're thinking inside of yourself right? Mm-hmm. I think that also shows again that relationship between story and 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 now, right? I've had experiences. I'll give you a very good example of this yes, right. Please. So one of the stories in my family is that my grandfather who I only met once, I was very young when he died he was about, I was about four or five when he passed away and I don't have any memories of him. Uh, the stories that i was told by my mom is that he was a perfectionist and that he was always riding on my dad to be perfect Mm. no he he and i hope i i I bring this story up all the time i hope my grandfather's not not pissed off on me for this but but he doesn't sound like a very nice person to my dad Mm. right and and my dad like he's constantly dealt with this thing where he's constantly seeking approval from other people and I mean I I know it now I'm in uh, an old age now where I can recognize it (laughs) but it probably comes back to that idea that he didn't get it from his own father right his father loved him I have no question of that but he just wasn't a a very nice person my dad because he was constantly writing him I talked to cousins of my father and they say, oh, your grandfather was a loving, warm, gave the best advice, the biggest hugs you can imagine, right? Mean, very warm individual. So what, okay, suddenly I've got two different stories, right, mm-hmm. of how to relate to this individual. And I'm not relating to him directly because I don't I've, I only met him once and I don't remember him, right? So I, I sat down and I had a I, I engaged in a in a the dumb supper which is a, a a pagan tradition really wonderful experience like a séance in a way but you're communing directly with a spirit in front of you and and I invited my grandfather to come in and sit in a chair. Funnily enough actually my great grandfather who all the stories of him were that he was wild that he could make money like he could walk through a marketplace and you know he'd be missing his shoes at the end but he'd have like you know 10 10 pounds in his in his pocket right so he he could just make money and he was he was very very he was very good at that and and he came in and we had a chat and and then my grandfather came in and I said to him grandfather what was that like why am i hearing these stories and what came through for me was that he didn't want my dad to turn out like his perception of his dad, which was that he didn't take life seriously. He didn't work for anything. Oh, right. And so he didn't want my dad to get lazy mm. like he was perceiving his dad, which is not true. So he said, you have to understand if I knew what I knew now, then I wouldn't be like that with him. And I think that's the other thing with ancestor work is that we get so locked into the stories of who these people were when they were alive, but we don't see them or can't see them necessarily as being able to change and grow and and evolve. If we see ancestors as being being beings Mm -hmm. now, existing now, some space, then they have had that time to progress. And so then the question is, are we locking them into... Mm who they were 400 years ago, 300 years ago? Yeah. And if so, how are we, first of all, how are we relating to them in that way? And secondly, how is it serving us to lock them into that pattern? Whether it be as the great, you know, cotton waver or yeah. whether it be as the flawed cotton waver, right? right, right? You know, what, what is that doing for us and our story now and how we're showing up to the world? That's then, that's coming back to us. Yeah. Right. With that individual that you had on, I, I don't know. They were obviously not going to ask you, but yeah. um, for them, they, there was something there with, okay, there was something right. about that. Right. 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 right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they ended up not being uh, a guest on the podcast okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> for other reasons, for other reasons. Hmm. But I always think back to that because it is this, it was challenging, I think, for them when I kind of responded back, you know, well, Maybe they weren't so great, but Mm -hmm. I like this idea of what you just said, you know, I, I'm now thinking like, well, how has he changed? How have these early Puritans changed? You know, what would Mm -hmm. a conversation with them now be like, you know, would they, you know, express regret? Would they, how, how have they grown? And I really Mm -hmm. like that idea. So I guess I'll have to have a dumb supper with them as well. And I was just wondering for the guests who are listening and aren't familiar with that, could you say just a little bit more about what the dumb supper is? You had, there were two, there was the dumb supper and the death cafe, I think. Yes, that's ideas. what it talks about in the book. Yeah. Yes, yes.
0: So so Deaf Cafe is a lot easier. It's a lot more widespread. So Deaf Cafe is a grief and bereavement support group. So it was set up by, a, I believe, in San Francisco, California, somewhere like that, maybe in the UK, somewhere. Anyways, it was set up yeah. about 20 years ago. And the idea was to create an intentional space for people to come in a cafe-like setting and talk about Deaf and talk about dying and, and kind of get those questions answered. Not necessarily about ancestors, but about what, what the actual process of death is. And and that you find death cafes all over the place with trainings. The Dumb Supper, on the other hand, is a, and I believe it actually came out of spiritualism originally, but it's it's, it's a cafe-like setting again. It's a ritual where you invite guests over to sit in uh, a chair opposite an empty chair. And in kind of a, this ritual space, um, you invite the ancestors to come. You Oftentimes, you'll build uh, uh, an ancestor shrine or some sort of focal point. And you're also served food, so there's a, a sensory parts to it, too. And, and you all just spend time, sometimes a little bit of music, sometimes in full silence, like candles, and you just commune with the dead. And I, I've i experienced several of them now, and I want to experience more because it's so powerful. You often find them around Halloween time and Samhain time, but there is a movement now to have dumb suppers in, in many different times of the year. And it's again, it's like about uh, that communing with the ancestors, communing with the, the, the dead, however way you see them. Um and it's a little bit more intimate because you don't, it's a direct communication. You don't have a medium who is there conveying the information for you. And and it's very intimate. And and sometimes people are are revealed to have a lot of hidden information, like really vivid stuff comes through for people that you may not necessarily get if you were going to a psychic or to a a medium. So, so dumb stoppers, the, the silent supper is also another name for it, but dumb supper tends to be what's in the pagan community. I know the claiming in on the, on the West coast, there tends to do a lot of them. Starhawk talks about it in
1: her um, pagan book of, of, of of death and dying. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just sounds fascinating. And it's, you know, in our culture, we have a weird relationship with death because we try to ignore it at all possible costs. And, you know, there was something that you wrote, I think, in the very beginning of the book, and and I really like this, and this resonated with me. And this is when you had started working with the ancestors. And you wrote that the ancestors did not whisper, they bellowed, and their directive yes. was to simply live. And and I loved that so much because one of the things that I think about quite a bit is that it's not necessarily death that we fear, but life. Mm. I think so. I, I agree. I think so. The context
0: of me writing that was you know, I, I, I went through a period. In, in 2010, I went over to the UK and I worked over there. So it wasn't just a visit, I actually worked over there for about five months. So I was actually actually in my homeland again, working and experiencing it like a local would, right? And then afterwards I went and stayed with my sister up north and I saw my family again after 15 years, because one of the tragedies of my lived experience in Ontario is that my parents never wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. And so we never went on holidays and that that compounded the trauma. So for a very long time, what I was living with was the narrative that I need to stay in the past because I, I won't have a good future. After I came back from 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 the UK, I overwhelmed myself and I dropped out of university for the first time. And I, I it took me years to get back to a place of healing again. And, and I did some very self-destructive things because of that. And so these people that were coming back into my life were people, all seven of them, were people that I was pining for. I was like latched onto them and who I was back when I knew them, right? Which was a very short stint between 18 and 22. And, and every single one of them that came back brought back that piece of, you know, you don't live in the past, don't live in the past, don't live in the past. I was able to release them from the pedestal I've been placing them onto. And the very last person, when he came back into my life, and he really was one of the loves of my life, it was very much that that idea that, okay, the ancestors are speaking here and they're saying, don't don't live in the past. You don't belong there. You live in the future. You live now. So focused now because for a very long time I was going day by day. I wasn't really focused on what ambition was, right? Mm -hmm. So and so I think that the idea of death, this is why I think we get caught when it comes to ancestor work. We are so interested in family story and living in the past and knowing who we are because of the past, because we're we're actually afraid of that death, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know we're actually afraid of oblivion. That's what we're afraid of.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and it seems like, you know, the working with the past and the way that you're expressing this is it's done in a way so that we can forge our stories for the future.
0: I think that's the hope. But I think easily people get stuck in... In oh, those yeah. old stories, and when people get stuck in those old stories, then they get stuck into, well, we can't change because right. we have to do it this way. We get yeah. stuck in that idea of tradition, which is then peer pressure by dead people, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that idea. The tradition is peer pressure from dead people. I thought that was great. You know, I also I want to shift a little bit here. I going to the. I kind of want to go back to the land, I suppose, because you also identify that the land, the sky, you know, the sea, Mm -hmm. the rivers, these can all be ancestors. And one of the teachers I've had, Brian Swim, he likes to say that the stars are our ancestors. And I love Mm -hmm. that because it seems like with this ancestral work, it, you know, it does go back to the sense of self. And you kind of alluded to this before it seems to me that it's an expansive sense of self and totally. it's a sense of self that is just interconnected with everything totally. that's exactly it individualism
0: as a social construct is one of the most damaging things because yeah. it makes that's where the modern uh, uh, pandemic of 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 depression i think comes from is that sense of isolation yeah. right because when you look at the majority of the cultures of the world, going right back into time, right? We are individuals within a culture, within a community, within a region, so on and so on. It, it, it's expansive. And so when we, I, I, I think when we we think of ancestor work, we're going like what Ancestry.com says, right? Mm-hmm. It's find yourself, find your story, right? right. It's about connection. It's about relationship. And I think that when we look at many cultures around the world that are non-Western, the distinction then between deity and ancestor or, you know, spirit and ancestor, whatever it is, doesn't exist in the same way as in the West. In the West, I'm saying modern neo-paganism and, you know, many alternative spiritualities. Categorize up all existence into different contexts, right? Oh, you're working with deity, you have to do it this way. You're working with ancestry, you have to do it this way. You're working with spirit guides, you have to do it this way. Whereas it's a continuum. You look at the at most ancient kind of animistic traditions, the understanding that the creators of the universe, the cosmos, whatever, are ancestral because they gave life, they gave rise to life, which eventually led to us, right? And so when it comes to the idea of the sky, or the land, or the sea as being ancestral, I I take it literally. The sea is literally where our ancient ancestors evolved. Mm The sky is where the, the the atoms that led to life came from. The land, if you are eating and consuming stuff that's been grown on specific land, then you're taking of that land into yourself and it becomes part of you. There's a lot of pieces there. It depend, I think it takes paradigm shifting, shifting focus, reconceptualizing. And then, of course, it's that possibility of of, of what kind of relationship. Right, and so yeah. we move from that structure of rigidity to possibility, and right. as soon as that starts to happen, then okay, we're now right. looking at the whole the whole universe.
1: So really, it's a sneaky way to get people to think animistically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, and exactly because that's something I was thinking is that all of this is very animistic. That you know everything is insold, everything is kind of mm-hmm. conscious in a way, and that. I think with animism, we don't have to be embodied and that you can have the ancestors still alive and present in some ways. And I know that there's a variety of ways of thinking about mm. this, which you addressed in the book, which was quite fascinating. And I liked the idea you were talking a little bit about how, you know, especially with ideas of like reincarnation and different ideas mm-hmm. of that different, the way I think you expl- explained it was that different layers of the personality mm-hmm. can exist simultaneously. And, and it's, it is a very different worldview than the one that is. we've inherited, right? Yeah, we tend to think,
0: again, I think it's that that curse of individualism. Yeah. The curse of individualism is the curse of linearism. Yeah. When you look at most worldviews around the world, um, most of those traditions have a very non-linear sense of relationship. And I, I would say if we were to really push people to understand relationship, then the relationship in, in general is non-linear, right? Yeah. But it's that I'm not telling anybody how to think. I'm just presenting the information. Right. And if it jars something for you, then okay,
1: yeah. explore that. Yeah. No, I appreciated that in the book very much that – you know, you have journal prompts and some suggestions, but you're not like, do this, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that's, that, that's awesome. And, you know, yeah. it, and it seems to me that sometimes what might have to happen is, you know, I, I kind of want to stick with the land here for a moment. You know, I said that, you know, whenever I lived in California for almost 19 years, and I always considered Colorado home. So I always said I was living in exile, but one of the things that I did was I intentionally developed a connection to a piece of land. There was a canyon that was just adjacent to NASA's uh, jet propulsion labs, and I would hike that canyon every week, weather permitting. And, and I intentionally went because people would say, well, why don't you go to different places to hike? There are a lot of places Mm -hmm. to hike. I'm like, no, I'm going to go here because I wanted to develop a connection to that land. Mm -hmm. And I would often go on Friday. So I just started calling it my Friday office and observing the changes, sometimes subtle, sometimes great, how the seasons change. I started noticing that almost spontaneously sort of ritual and celebration Mm. and relationship would emerge. Mm. And so it seems to me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but that's, you know, that can be something like that can be part of the ancestral relationship and that we, instead of following a prescribed step, this is how you connect with your ancestors, you just start seeking that relationship and see what emerges, and you will be absolutely. guided by the experience. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As you were saying that, I, I
0: got a little bit goosebumpy for a sec because, <laughs> in essence, what you're talking about is a very similar process that goes on in Australia with songlines. Mm. So the Aboriginal Australians down there, they have these walking tracks that are are, are, are physical spaces that they walk. At certain points throughout those tracks, they stop and they sing song, they engage in ritual, or there's certain information that's connected with certain spots along that that landscape. Mm. Um, and it, it it becomes then a, a convergence point between culture and themselves. I think that landscape is an interesting one because we tend to often only see landscape. We either often only see landscape as it is right now, or we, we relate to it as... As always being that way. Mm. And the, the, I think the reality is that often at times landscape is actually our cousin. Mm. Landscape is our brother or our sister, is our sibling. I think of the United Kingdom, for example. People go over to the United Kingdom, and they look at England and they look at the beautiful fields and they look at the beautiful landscape as, as being, you know, nature. This is natural, this is beautiful, mm. all this, right? All of that has been. Has been in relationship with the people who have been tilling that land for 1,000, 2,000 years, Mm -hmm. right? And so the landscape that people are seeing now is a byproduct of all of those ancestors working that land to be how it is now. You know, in the canyon, for example, not necessarily by human hands. But that canyon is uh, a product of the river that th- mm-hmm. went through it all those many many centuries, right? And so, in 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 living in the world now, we see it as being ancestral to things that took place right. earlier, right? right? It's a product of of history as as well as we are, yeah. and so I think then we can we can relate to it in that way as being a in the in the immediacy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. but that then ties into that ancestral idea of responsibility mm-hmm. and the idea of legacy right? right there won't be a land for our descendants if we don't get the act
1: together right 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 you know? yeah yeah absolutely mm-hmm. yeah and i always try to acknowledge as well that the canyon i i was hiking was the ancestral land of other peoples uh that's also true, Tongva, yes. you know um Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is always very important to keep in mind. So let me ask you about communicating a little bit more about communicating with the ancestors Mm -hmm. from our perspective and from their perspective, because you gave an example Mm -hmm. of these people coming back into your life that you saw as the ancestors kind of speaking to you. What are some other ways that we can communicate and that they communicate with us? Absolutely. So this really goes back to that
0: idea of worldview, because, you know, somebody can be communicating with you, but if you don't understand the language or you don't recognize it as being a form of communication, then you're not, it's, the communication won't happen. So really understanding your worldview of, of if communication is even possible, it's not my place to say to anybody that, you know, the ancestors are going to talk to you in this certain way. And that, ties in with the ancestors worldview themselves you know if, if you have Christian ancestors who are not comfortable with communicating with the living because they themselves believe that it's not appropriate then they're not going to do that right so that's why we get a lot of differences around the world but generally like the the underpinning of ancestral work and 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 tradition is generally the understanding that the ancestors are, are present they're not in some distant afterlife. They're not in, they're not just, you know, cast into oblivion back when they were, when they died, right? So we often cast, I think, ancestors as historical as opposed to being here now. Right. And so with that then, if we were to change that, then there's a possibility that we can communicate with them now. Right. And so throughout throughout Africa, throughout Asia, there's all sorts of divination practices where you can speak to the ancestors directly through the medium of of divination. There are spirit possession traditions where the ancestors literally come in and possess and you're able to interact with them. Haitian voodoo is a very good example of that. The Loa spirits are all ancestral, as well as being forces of nature and deities and whatnot too. So, So there's that piece. Sometimes it's through signs and symbols and omens, right? Again, it depends on the ancestors that you're speaking with. Sometimes the ancestors are so primordial that they wouldn't communicate in the same way that we would communicate as as, as living humans now. So I think it, it I think it depends on what kind of ancestor you're working with how you're open to communicating with them, what you want to communicate about. Mm. Like an ancestor from 2000 years ago, from a culture that is very, very distant from now, may not necessarily have the same need to connect with the living because they've been dead for so long, or they've become a genius loci. In which case then, like your canyon, for example, if your canyon, and this often happens, we, we often see this, that places become connected to particular individuals and then they become genius loci they become Mm. spirits of place Mm. so when walking through that canyon connecting with the the essence of that canyon forming communication with that canyon on on a regular basis as you build that relationship with it there may have been a communication to you and it could have been just a whisper or it could have been a feeling or it could have been insight right yeah yeah yeah. So
1: yeah. If that answers the questions. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm always stuck in my Friday office. I think I had to go through a morning process with it since I'm no longer there, but I'm looking forward to going back and visiting on occasion, but also looking forward to developing a similar relationship someplace here, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have commented like, Oh, you're going to find some other place. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, kind of like, a response if you've been in a long-term relationship and they're like, oh, well, there um, are plenty of fish in the sea. Yes. It's like, well, you don't understand there was this very specific I relationship. So. And I've been thinking, it's like, yeah, I'll look around, but I need to be a little bit settled again. <laughs> I need to have that sense of home before I can develop a greater connection mm-hmm. to the land and to the spirit of the land. So, yes, in, in my ancestral work, I always make offerings. I want to ask about, ask you about offerings to mm-hmm. this. But in what I do, I always uh, include ancestors of land and ancestors of place. And also, along the lines of what you were uh, just saying as well, is our human ancestors and our non-human ancestors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So maybe you can say something about offerings and ritual, because it seems to me, if I understand your work correctly, that's also a form of communication. Totally.
0: Yeah. And I I really, really hope that that comes through very, very clearly. So I thank you. Yeah. Ritual is communication, right? What we do in magic, in ritual, in play, whatever it is, every element of that is communicating with the spirit world in some form right so even depending on who you're communicating or what you're communicating with so this is where symbolism and action and and meaningful work comes into it because then that word intentionality comes in so with ritual connected to the ancestors all of that has to come from worldview. You have to understand kind of how you're conceptualizing these beings, mm-hmm. or these individuals in or collectives in order to then communicate with them. And so then that filters through to reflecting in then what you do. So with offerings, for example, a very, very common one from many African traditions is, well, if you see the ancestors as being in the sky, why are you putting their offerings down on the ground, right? right. Why not raise it up, right? right? If you see the ancestors as dwelling even on a symbolic level in the earth, then placing that in the earth is is going to be powerful because it's going to be accessible to them. Even in in what you offer, the symbols that you of of the food that you provide, the 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 the, the, the gestures that you perform, right, it can be very meaningful and also serve purposes of, of communication to think here so respect showing how to show respect Mm. so when you when when in human society we shake a hand or we maintain eye contact or we whatever it is and every culture is different in how respect is shown you're signaling through non-verbal ways to that other individual that you are respecting them that you are present that you are you are there right and you're not verbalizing that it's the same way with ritual. It's just using symbolic language and gesture and, and other movements. So so in many ways, I would say that all of those pieces, with that, with that key piece of communication, then that can filter into, okay, you're going to make an offering. Well, you're not gonna just offer something for no reason. It's like walking up to somebody with a cup of tea and giving them a cup of tea and being like, here's a cup of tea. And <laughs> Sorry, what? was, you know, it doesn't make any right. sense. So offerings have to be understandable. Mm. And because a lot of the way that we often see ancestors is as dead human beings, then tying into, okay, well, what was the culture of those dead human beings? Mm. It's easier to give offerings to our recently deceased because they ate the same food as us. So we have that connection with them it's a little bit more difficult to offer something to a being from 2000 years ago, right? This is where then the idea of the collective comes in. Well, what is the culturally relevant way that you, in, in your culture, in who you are, can show respect? Well, for me, that is giving them a small bit of my food, mm-hmm. that in, uh, as a basic symbolic gesture. It doesn't matter what the food is. I am giving of this thing I've created to my ancestors. And, and they know that, they know as a collective, and this is sustenance. So very basic building blocks right there. So just build off of that idea then, because I think a lot of the books that are available and a lot of questions that people ask is, well, what can I offer? What do I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? And it's all the wrong question. Right. It's coming from a place of, okay, what am I allowed to do? Versus right. okay, well, what's going to be meaningful and right. meaningful is, and, and meaning
1: is the foundation of communication. Right. Yeah. I think that often people want the guidelines, you know, and it's, they they I think it's just yes. because of how religion functions in our society in many ways mm-hmm. that we're told, oh, you do this, you do this, you do this, you stand, you rise, you pray, you do this. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a nervousness in telling folks that well whatever you find meaningful that's what you should do you know or let because it, just it kind can of,
0: come across as really vague yeah yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah but i think it's so important because that is where you're going to get that deep profound connection and that sense cool. of yeah communication with them um and uh, that
0: comes then back to, if I can just quickly yeah, say this, that then comes back to that idea of then looking at culture of origin, looking yeah. at religion of origin, even if you don't believe in Christianity,
1: right.
0: saying yeah. a prayer on behalf of the dead mm. to those who, to those dead who that's going to be very meaningful to them right. is going to signal to something, them something very different. Right? Same with spell work, knowing yeah. that, you know, a certain Catholic charm, for example, um, is powerful to the ancestors, because yeah. that was powerful to them when they were alive, you're going to be plugging into a lineage of, of, right. of power, right. you don't necessarily have to believe that, right. And yeah. I know some people will disagree with me, Very probably, you know, Catholic witches who will disagree with me. <laughs> but I see it that way, right, you're yeah. plugging into a combined shared space which is the
1: the the practice yeah yeah and well and that just seems respectful to the ancestors Mm -hmm. you know and getting beyond our own personal biases very Um, much so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i like that because i think you gave an example you gave a couple of examples in the book i think one was personal about lighting some candles i think it was at westminster abbey and then there was a i think a woman who ended up at a, she was very resistant to it. And she ended up at a small church and she found out that that church was where her grandparents, I believe it was, had gone. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, that was uh, an aha moment for her, believe you me. (laughs) Right, right. I can imagine. Well, I thought it was quite beautiful. And so I appreciate that very, very much. I I have, I know we're going to start running out of time here, unfortunately, (laughs) but I have a question. I don't know if you can answer this, but, and I'm going to try my best to, Uh, verbalize this. It seems to me that there's more and more information and work coming out regarding the ancestors. And I think that we work with ancestors already, because it seems to be part of almost every single religious tradition, whether Mm -hmm. or not we acknowledge it. And it comes out in other ways as well. So I think some very quick and relatable Examples are when we look at the Abrahamic traditions, Abraham is an ancestor, you know, this patriarchs are ancestors. And even from a non religious aspect in the United States, we have our founding fathers who are kind of mythic figures in many ways. Yes. And there are certainly mythic tales. And you identify in the book other ways of. How this manifests. And so, another one I think that's connected to this is like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And you write mm-hmm. about that as well. But I don't think that most people think of all of these as ancestral work. They, but they yet, don't. No. But yet, it seems to be something that's coming up in the collective consciousness somehow. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering if you would agree with that, if there is more attention being paid to ancestral work. And if you have any ideas as to why that might be.
0: I think that the, there are many pieces to that. I would say that we tend to often find, from a historical point of view, that in times of instability, people tend to want to ground themselves and, and in roots, right? And the Western world has been so disconnected from its roots, particularly around the understanding of death for the past 50, 60, 70 years, right? We don't have the same connections culturally to those solid foundations that Europe would have, right? Still, right. right? And I, I hesitate to say that, and, and 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 too 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 much generalization. But I I mean, we are in the past twenty years, we have been in a very unstable situation in the West, and I think that more and more people are interested in in finding finding a solid ground for themselves. Right? We can only go and we can only go off with the fairies, or the angels, or the deities for so long before right. we have to come home, right? Mm-hmm. I think also that part of it is, at least for people who I've noticed who are interested in ancestral work they tend to want to understand themselves much better. Mm. And a lot of those people tend to be, again, people coming into alternative spirituality spaces. We have such an access to information now on the internet, and so there's a lot more availability. Beforehand, before, you know, 25 years ago, people would have to, especially in the West, would have to um, be contacting, you know, little abbeys, little churches in the middle of, mm-hmm. of, of Europe or middle of Britain that may not even have had telephones. And so they, 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 that disconnect then of a lived history, it became then a mythic history. Now that we're in this really nihilistic phase of, of society, all of the old stories are being challenged, all of the old stories, and quite some of them quite rightly so. People are then searching out, okay, well, what is the story going forward? What is the narrative going forward? Mm. Right? And I think in neo-paganism, this is why neo-paganism has a lot more work to do with the ancestors, mm. because you know the old stories, that the origin stories, the mythic stories that you you mentioned, right, are no longer holding as much sway as they used to, right? The idea of the burning times has been discredited. The idea of the the destruction of the ancient pagans by the evil Christians has been discredited. And I think this is why more people are coming back to incorporating kind of ancestral pieces around Christianity, not as a lived spiritual practice for themselves, but as trying to understand origins. And certainly, I think that since... 9-11 in the United States and Canada, we've been shaken out of this image of what the West is in the world. And and as as geopolitics are changing, we're seeing new new mega powers starting to rise, China, another, and and Brazil, and and certainly Russia, and, and what Russia is doing right now. That identity, that communal identity has been shaken. And that communal identity was around for us since after World War II. But I think that, you know, every generation we have this, it's just now that it's, it's a lot more in focus because we have access to each other in ways that we didn't have before. Right? right? It's a lot easier to see the changes on the internet than
1: it is in the back of, you know, newspapers and whatnot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It just seems to me that we're being called home. I don't know who or what is calling us, but it feels like we're being called home somehow, some way. I think uh, how I would respond to that is
0: I think some people are being called home. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because for other people, home is wherever they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? I think that it's that. that I I, I hear what you're saying, and I think yeah. for a lot of people that is it yeah. is that sense. But right. that question of well, what is that home? Yeah. right? Is that the story that they've been told for the past two hundred years in their in their in their cultures? Mm. Is it a sense of, of 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 finding grounding now in the yeah. present in this in this sense of home? And we also we tend to be very at least on a cultural level we tend to look at authenticity as being tied to ancientness, and right, so the, right. the longer back we can trace yeah. ourselves, the more grounded we feel. Right. Mm. You know? Yeah, and just because something's old doesn't make it better. But it's a weird thing when times yeah. of, of 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 trouble come in. During the pandemic, I lived quite close by to a Costco, mm. and this particular Costco had somebody come in and they bought seven hundred dollars worth of toilet paper. Mm. Seven hundred dollars worth of toilet paper. Yeah. And what is that? <laughs> it's because. They wanted to feel yeah. secure. Yeah. And so in many ways, I, I liken it to that, right? Mm-hmm. I think people who are um, who are feeling ungrounded, feeling unstable, feeling unsure about what's, what the future is going to be like, what are we going to do? We're going to reach back into time. We're going to ground mm-hmm. ourselves with these stories. We're going to explore right. the ancestors because maybe then they can give us wisdom of how to get through this. Yes. I think that's also part of it too. You know, maybe we're all very immature juvenile individuals and we're we're trying to we're trying to gain strength right. by knowing that the ancestors can come and give that to us and say, no, we've gone through worse, right? Yeah. You know, it's nineteen eighteen again and we've gone through plague. It's thirteen seventy-six and we've gone through plague and you will survive, right? Yeah. I think that's perhaps part of it.
1: Yeah. 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 It seems like there's so much in this ancestral work and the idea of connecting and communicating with the ancestors that, you know, you can, you could write a few more books <laughs> on the <this> topic, <laughs> but there are so many different ways of exploring it, I think. So I kind of hate to end the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do have to run off here in a little bit, so let me ask you, what do you have coming up? Of
0: So I, well, I'm in the process of moving to the UK, so a lot of my my time and effort is is being devoted to that. Um, I am going to be offering some online, quite a lot of online material and classes coming up in in the fall. So people can check out benstimpson.com for more information on that. I do plan on running an ancestral eight-week course, kind of bridging out of this book for people. So that'll probably be later on as well in the fall. I've got my podcast series that I do, and I have a great lineup of uh, traditional witchcraft and folkloric witchcraft folk coming on during the the fall as well. That can all be found through my website. In terms of writing, I do have a couple of ideas for books. Ancestors are very foundational for me. Mm And so I'm now looking at those other pieces of that foundation. So I'm looking at the, at the spirits and the deities and the the other beings that are not ancestral and how to relate to them. How does that fit into the work? So sure. that's uh, that's also what I'm working on. Apart from that, I'm gearing up to start to offer ancestral counseling stuff. I'm a trained professional counselor too, so I'm always taking on clients. But particularly because of this book, I want to start to offer service around what some of the stuff that comes up when people do delve into their ancestry and they don't find they like what they're seeing, right? Some of that trauma pieces. So so
1: very busy. Got lots of stuff going on, but that's me. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you for all that. And the book is out and available now, right? So it's out for pre-order. I don't know when. Okay. When is this coming out? When is this going to be? Uh, it'll be out in probably about six weeks. In uh, about so, six weeks. So yeah. So this is what August fourteenth. I think that we're recording. Oh, for, uh, close to the end of September, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mid, mid to late yeah. September. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Perfect. So in that case, then the book is out in the U S for those (laughs) listening and then Canada and Europe and Australia, it will be out in the
1: first week of October. So, okay. All right. Perfect. Well, I'll put the links in for the book as well. Um, And again, I really enjoyed the book. I've read a few ancestor books or books on the ancestors, but I really like the approach that you took and it's uh, very well written. And there were some, I have several pages here of notes, and quotes that I've taken out of it, so I do highly encourage people to get a copy of the book. Thank you. Um, so Ben, it has been wonderful speaking with you. And again, I wish the conversation could go on. I've <laughs> got to run, but but thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you. No, this is wonderful. Thank you, and thank you for listening, everybody
1: And that's a wrap on episode ninety nine of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching. If you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, and please support my work, you can join my Patreon. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. Some of the perks for patrons include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio discourse server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast, uh, spiritual and philosophical classics, and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. I mean, remember, I am a professor of philosophy and religion, so consider the book club an ongoing classroom where you can go as deep as you want with me and other Rebel Spirits. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I still have big plans for the podcast and the YouTube channel. Uh, Right now, this is all a labor of love. So your support will not only help me in continuing what I do here, but will also help me grow the channel and the podcast. I will be incredibly grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, co-workers on social media. You know the drill. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always like to say, I'm out here doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So, if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. It only takes a second, and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review, and please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your Rebel Spirit.